This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Jesse Puji, and today we're breaking down Peloton. Peloton was founded over 10 years ago with the idea of making the best in-person spin classes available at home. By delivering eye-catching hardware and compelling content, it has since become the largest interactive fitness platform in the world, with over 6 million members. Peloton's rise has not been without challenges, however, and the business's economic model is under debate as we speak. To break down Peloton, I'm joined by my brother, Vinny Puji, a partner at Left Lane Capital. Left Lane is a growth stage investment firm focused on consumer businesses. We discuss Peloton's success in creating a new fitness category, the impact of the pandemic on its financials, and why it might make sense for Peloton to build its own music label. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Peloton. We have a special guest here, my brother, Vinny Puji. And it's actually the second time he's been here. If you missed it, listen to a previous episode we recorded on Calm. Welcome, Vinny. Thank you. So, Vinny, why don't we just jump right in? What is Peloton and what does the business do? Most people know Peloton as a connected, smart bike, an at-home piece of fitness equipment. But it's actually a lot more than that. It's really five businesses in one. You have a retail business that at one point had fitness studios, but really is meant for selling those devices. You and I recently bought a bike for your basement in St. Louis. They have a second business that is the actual hardware business of manufacturing bikes and treadmills and soon TV devices and additional hardware and wearables. And we'll get into that later. The third is a content subscription business, the likes of Spotify and Netflix and Apple Music, et cetera. And the fourth is they have kind of a media business where they have homegrown celebrities with their instructors. And it comes with all the complexities of running a media business, which includes music licensing and and a variety of other issues. And then the fifth, I would put this in kind of the ancillary bucket is other revenue, which they're a big brand, they're a big lifestyle company. And so people buy their clothes and they identify with them and they want just generally to be associated with Peloton. So in short, it's a lot of different things, but it is a connected fitness subscription and content business alongside a smart hardware business. How do most people experience the basic offering for it? Most people are experiencing one of two offerings. One is the very accessible about 13 bucks a month subscription that's a mobile first offering and you and I can download it, start using it. We don't need to buy a device and you get a tremendous library of content with 18, 19 new classes added every single week and in multiple languages, so on and so forth. The other way to experience it, I think the iconic way people think of Peloton is on the bike. So you have a bike that comes pre-loaded and constantly up to date with fantastic content that's incredibly well integrated into your workout experience. Give us a sense for the scale of the business. What sort of revenue, EBITDA, how many customers, subscribers, just give us a sense for how big this business is. 
Yeah, in the last full fiscal year, they did about $4 billion in revenue, three-fourths of which was from the hardware business, one-fourth of which was from the subscription business, which is growing even faster. But overall, important to note, they grew at over 100%, which at that scale is tremendous. And from a user standpoint, they have about two and a half million people on their connected fitness subscription. And that represents about 6 million members in aggregate because there's, there's multiple members per subscription oftentimes. It's got so many different pieces to it, but in some ways, like the exercise bike is a very old idea. Take us back to the founding story a little bit. How did they get started? What was the insight? And what did they really get right to turn into this huge business that we know today? This is a fun story. I think anytime you have category creation, and I will posit that this company is a category creator, it's never a direct route. It's a complicated one. It's Apple creating the iPhone. It's Tesla creating its first electric vehicles. To a certain extent, it's Netflix. And so going back in time a little bit, you have the pretty iconic founder, John Foley. John's background was quality and it was unique. It was everything from making candy to being an internet executive at companies like IAC, which for those who don't know, is one of the best training grounds for consumer internet executives on earth. But John was almost 40 years old or right around there and hadn't actually had tremendous success, but he had a great network and he had people who believed in him and trusted him. And if you go back in time about 10 years ago when Peloton was started, there was a really big trend around studio fitness happening specifically in New York City. And we have a funny connection to this trend because obviously our sister-in-law pile started ClassPass. And so anytime you have a mega trend like that, many different businesses are built. And in this case, John was a guy who liked to stay fit and he loved these studio fitness classes, specifically the spin classes. And so he would go to his, funny enough, future competitor's classes and enjoyed them so much that the idea was kind of sparked that, hey, why can't I do this at home? And he will posit that this was not a lifelong mission. This wasn't just throwing darts at a board and dedicated a starting company. This was a lightning bolt. This was one of those magical ideas where he just suddenly saw this product and had to see it come into existence. But it's not a team of one. It was a team of really five people on the founding level, four of whom are still with the company, which I think is pretty special. And this product was not easy to develop at all. So the first version of the hardware, I mean, they had a failed Kickstarter campaign. And the first version of the hardware, the bike was about two times the size it is today. They went to Taiwan, they tried to get a bike manufactured, it came back. Genuinely, they had to hire an extraordinarily tall model <laughs> to show off the device because it was actually so large. And it took them multiple iterations, but eventually they got a piece of hardware working. And there was a tremendous aha moment from anyone who they could get to try the device. And I think that's important because when you're taking what is an old category for Tesla, that's motor vehicles. For Peloton, that's at-home exercise equipment. People weren't excited about at-home exercise equipment. In fact, they were excited about the opposite. They were excited about these trendy new studio fitness classes. So how could you take what they're excited about and then make it accessible from a convenience standpoint to people at home. So that's what they did so successfully. It took them years to get to that point in time. It was a painful journey from a fundraising standpoint. Nobody wanted to put money into this company. And why did they not want to put money in this company? Well, it didn't exist. The category that they were investing in couldn't be 
traced with numbers. There was no quick Google for you to see the market size for connected fitness companies. And when you're creating a category, nobody believes you. If you're Uber creating this category, people say, well, the yellow cab market is only so big. Well, guess what? Uber's bigger than the entire yellow cab industry combined. And so that's what Peloton's still on the journey toward doing. Early on, again, I think the iconic thing you mentioned was the bike. What was the order of ops? You, know, you talked about five different businesses. When you think about the timeline, what did they start with? And what did they build? And what did they build to kind of build this multifaceted business that exists today? The bike came first. The hardware came first. But inherently in the Peloton experience, you need iconic instructors. And Peloton famously posted ads saying, we're looking for the 10 best instructors in the world. They attracted them and they kind of built them in-house. Today, they only have 51 instructors. So it tells you at billions of dollars in revenue scale, it's not like they have thousands of instructors out there. That's the whole beauty of this business model. It's beautifully scalable, but they had to start with some content arsenal. And so from early days, they did prioritize creating quality content, but they made their money off of and they operated as a hardware company. And so they were running a unit economic profitable hardware business and creating this category with the bike. Over time, as you scale, as many companies in the fitness space have experienced, you have to become a music licensing business. And you know they've been sued over that. It's an expensive part of their revenue and something that they have now fought and clawed their way to have 2.6 million songs under license at this point. And then you have to get people to try these bikes. So at first they, they created their own fitness classes and studios. And I don't know if you ever went to the ones in New York, but they were great and they were fun, but it was more to just get people to try the bikes and then eventually buy them at home. So it really was retail. And then today they have a much more traditional form of retail where they have about a hundred stores all over the country and increasingly all over the world to just get people to try this thing for five minutes, because they believe if you try it, it's such a uniquely good experience, it'll change your mind. One last question about kind of how they came up. How did they do distribution in the early? I mean, if everyone had to try it, how did they actually sell these things? They sold it, as I mentioned, in person a little bit. They were really trying to sell it direct. And one of the issues with selling a big and somewhat complex piece of hardware direct is the supply chain doesn't necessarily exist and the delivery networks don't necessarily exist to get you your bike. So one level of complexity is just getting that bike made and delivered to you on time. But then that last mile of getting it to a customer and setting it up in their home and everything like that, they actually had to create a lot of that. During the early days, last mile distribution was a really significant problem. But with investment in distribution centers and last mile operation centers and training third-party distributors, they have alleviated those problems for the most part. And of course, every time there's a big spike in demand, like with the pandemic, it breaks it all and they have to rebuild it again. You mentioned earlier this example of Uber and taxi cabs. I'd love for you to zoom out actually a little bit and talk about the at-home fitness market, both in terms of what it was maybe pre-Peloton as well as what it has evolved to become. For example, is Peloton bigger than the previous size of the entire at-home market? Like, Give us a sense for some of those things and other things you're seeing in the category. The short answer is Peloton is not yet bigger than the entire market. And the entire market is a hard thing to put your finger on. The global fitness and wellness spend bucket is a $600 billion bucket. There's, of course, hundreds of millions of people, a few hundred million people specifically, that go to the gym globally. 
And so Peloton will tell you its market size is maybe 90 million people who are interested in or are good potential members of their ecosystem. But not all those 90 million people can actually afford a $2,000 bike. There are actually incumbents in this space who have greater revenues than Peloton, but they command much lower valuations. And the reason why is they're actually very, very traditional hardware manufacturers where if they have a good year and they sell a whole bunch of hardware, hopefully they make some good margin on it and the market values them really well because of it. But if they have a bad year, if they have a slowdown, if they have, frankly, what the market is experiencing right now in at-home fitness, they have no revenues because you're only as good as your last month of sales. In the case of Peloton, what they do have is a greater market size or market capitalization than any fitness company that's kind of come before or concurrently with them. Vinny, can you take us through the unit economics of Peloton's business? When we look at the unit economics, we should look at them from a year or so back, and then we should look at them today. Because obviously, what we've seen in the news and what we've seen in Peloton stock performances, they've changed. So how have they changed? If you look at Peloton about a year back, if you're selling a, on average, $1,500 hardware device at a 40% margin, you're making about 600 bucks. And in fact, they were actually making even more money and selling even higher AOVs, average order values, when you account for just the cash side of things. So they were making 600 plus bucks. Their acquisition cost had dropped from six, 700 bucks pre-pandemic to about two, three, maybe 400 bucks in the middle of the pandemic, depending on the quarter. So these guys were actually making profit on the first purchase. And then of course, as we've already discussed, they were attaching an ultra high margin, high retention subscription product. So here's a subscription product where you make 500 bucks a year and you retain well over 90% of users every single year. So if you assume that those metrics get worse and they only have five years of average subscription length for a subscriber at 500 bucks a year, that's about 2,500 bucks of revenue. And if you assume they have about a 70% or so margin, you're looking at a business that's making an additional 17, 1800 bucks on top of that profit versus a $400 acquisition cost. These guys were making 2000 bucks in gross profit. And so they had what I would call an instant day zero payback period and about a 5x lifetime value to CAC ratio, which is very much the North Star metric for a lot of consumer and consumer internet businesses. Now let's look at it today and let's look at why analysts have become so skeptical. We can get into this a bit more, but Peloton's management, when they were faced with a tough situation on the supply chain front, people were ordering bikes and they couldn't get them. And not only could they not get them, their friends were seeing that they couldn't get their bikes. And so they were going to competitors. They were going to companies who could fuel that growth. So Peloton's management had to make a tough decision. And that was doing unsustainable things in the short term, like flying bikes overseas to people and 10xing their shipping costs, but also some things that are going to have a lasting effect. Not only did they expand their own manufacturing footprint, they also acquired a company for over $400 million that manufactures a lot of fitness equipment that sold more on the commercial side. And it's a good business. It's a 400 million or so revenue business itself. And it's an interesting hedge because it actually, it's the antithesis of the at-home fitness market. It's selling into every other place that you could work out in. But they really did it so that they could expand their supply chain footprint. Now, when you're under pressure and you 
solve a problem more than once, that can have negative effects. So they solve that problem multiple times. And the result is now their hardware gross margin is suffering. Their hardware gross margin has dropped below 20%. But let's say for easy numbers, it's 20% today. And they're also suffering from a fall in demand. Now, that's not a surprise. Years of demand was pulled forward with COVID. So now it's a bit harder to sell these bikes. And they've also penetrated deeper into the population. And when I say deeper, I mean into lower and lower socioeconomic stratas. And so now you have households who make less than 100K a year buying a $1,500 exercise bike. Well, they're going to need some help. And so that means they're going to need a discount, financing, et cetera, et cetera. So suddenly... Peloton's only going to be making, let's say for round numbers, 20% on a $1,500 product. So they're going to make 300 bucks. But there's a tremendous amount of competition. Demand has fallen and Peloton wants to show that it can keep growing. And so now acquisition costs is creeping at and actually above $1,000 per bike. And so now it's going to actually take them a few years to break even thanks to that subscription. And so the company is going to go from actually being cash flow positive, which it was for a few quarters, to hemorrhaging money if it tries to grow, because it's not going to pay back on that marketing spend for a full two years. People used to pay them essentially to have the subscription, (laughs) and now they're paying big time to bring those people in. Let's double click even further into that. You kind of went through the P&L version of that, which makes sense. But then this is different than a media subscription business in that like they have to spend money on building their supply chain and manufacturing. And so they used to be plus a few hundred and then have the subscription revenue. Now you're saying they're minus 700, which means a couple of years before that payback. Are there cash costs associated with each bike they're selling right now and bike production and other things that are also pulling on their cash flow? Absolutely. Now, I think Peloton does in general a pretty good job of burdening its income statement, of putting all the costs related to creating that revenue back into the income statement. But a reality of a business that is a physical goods business is you have tremendous swings in working capital. So Peloton said, this is never going to happen to me again. I'm never going to run out of bikes. And what do they do? They pre-manufacture, they pre-ordered hundreds of millions of dollars of bikes. So now that's sitting on their balance sheet, but it's not sitting in their bank account. And at the same time, we mentioned that they expanded their facilities. So in acquiring businesses, obviously that cash flow hits your more cash flow from investing activities. But in expanding your own manufacturing footprint, you have to buy equipment to make these bikes. And so they spend tens and in certain quarters, hundreds of millions of dollars on said CapEx. And so when we look at their TTM cash burn, it's a bit scary, candidly. It's about $2 billion of money burned. They don't have all that much in the bank right now. And they also have about $800 million in debt. And so I think some investors are looking at them increasingly sideways and saying, hey, not only did you raise money when you said you wouldn't, you're probably going to have to raise money again. If you give the management the benefit of the doubt that they invested $2 billion, maybe that's a great investment. What has to play out for for that to be a great investment, that $2 billion for them? I think we have to look at it a little bit more under the hood of that $2 billion in burn. The burn, the few hundred million dollars spent shipping people bikes because tremendous supply chain disruptions just necessitated that if you wanted to get those bikes that month. I really don't think that that was necessarily a prudent decision for a business that is burning money. Now, I think management would argue, these are our customers. We need to do right by our customers. This is our reputation. And there's opportunity cost in allowing our 
competitors to grow when we can't ship devices. So I think there's certainly an argument to be made. And then there's cash burn that's related to stuff like R&D. Now, Peloton knows that they can't be a one device company, but largely to date, they have been. And they're investing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D, so much more than any of their peers, which should mean that there's moat, that there's tremendous technology that they've developed, that there's more products on the way. And we've seen some of them in market already, and some of them announced to be released shortly. Peloton's making a bet on that. So those new products need to be successful. And their marketing in becoming the dominant brand, which has been successful, they are the dominant brand in at-home fitness, needs to spread to these new products as well. So if it is the Peloton bike that is famous, that is well-marketed, et cetera, that $2 billion in cash burn will be a failure. But if Peloton product two, three, four, and 5 end up getting so much more brand recognition and therefore success because of the Peloton brand, then that burn on sales and marketing spend, as well as the burn on research and development, will be well worth it. I want to come back a little bit to the strategy of the treadmill. Last thing on the cash flow thing, you mentioned they might have to raise again. So there's some liquidity questions. I mean, what has to happen where they don't have to raise again? I mean, they've, they've bought a bunch of bikes. They've had working capital. Their, their economics have gotten worse. What are the scenarios where the liquidity issues go away in the next year? And what are the issues where, no, they have to go back and go raise a few more billion dollars? None of us have a crystal ball, but assuming that the next year is a tough one for new sales and Peloton doesn't come out with a runaway product that effectively sells itself, Peloton is likely going to have a relatively high customer acquisition cost. And so they are probably going to burn money on sales and marketing. At their scale and with their retention rates, they can actually finance that annuity stream. And so Peloton might say, hey, markets, you're way too short-sighted. We have the same retention as insurance companies, and we're just going to finance this stuff. And so Peloton might go and beyond the affirms of the world, they might just go to a bank and say, hey, here's years and years of cash flow and retention. We would like you to pay us up front for what we already know with millions of subscribers, which is a tremendous amount of data, we're going to be collecting. And so they can solve their cash flow problem through financial engineering, through operations, given the hit in their hardware gross margin, it's going to be near impossible for them in the next year or two to turn a profit. Going back now, you were talking about the strategy of investing in new products and new things. I bought a treadmill, a Peloton treadmill over the holidays. And have you used it? My wife has used it many times. I have not. Is it working? Are they selling? We'll see what this past quarter looks like pretty shortly. Historically speaking, the short answer is not really. They're not really moving the needle for Peloton quite yet. A lot more exciting than treads for their current P&L is actually international growth. So if I look at two vectors where they can grow quite a bit on the hardware business side, one is new devices and one is geographic expansion, I see the latter showing a lot more signs of success and still growing at 100% a year, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not seeing the success out of Tread yet. Now, with the caveat of we haven't seen this quarter sales and Tread has had numerous setbacks, so it hasn't been a, a level playing field necessarily. When I signed up for my treadmill, one thing they do is they give you this mobile app as a part of your subscription. They sell that mobile app on a standalone basis for 13 bucks or something. I mean, that's a extremely asset light potentially high margin. High, like, Is there any thought on doubling down or tripling down on that approach? So that's what Peloton has been positioning for the past few years. And it's starting to become a lot more believable. 
So if we look at connected fitness subscribers, that means subscribers like you who have a hardware device, you're doing over 40% non-bike-related activities already. And if we look at people who are only on the digital subscription, which is what you just described for 13 bucks a month, they're doing majority non-bike-related things, have nothing to do with the hardware that you have in your home. And so Peloton has seen that the caliber of their content is fantastic. I'm, by the way, a user of their content, and I think it is fantastic and better than all their peers. And they've increasingly been speaking about their subscription business and the fact that one day it will overtake their hardware business. Now, it's still less than 25% overall, and so it's just going to take a little bit of time. What do you make of the fact that management has struggled to give forecasts and share information that's actually been accurate? I want to highlight that Peloton's really only a 10-year-old company. And it's been in completely unprecedented time for the entirety of their public existence. Now, with that necessary caveat, and also highlighting that I think it's really cool and really special that the majority of founders, four out of the five founders, are still actively managing and running the company, there are clear signs of what I would call a lack of maturity, or at least a lack of public maturity from management. One example that I mentioned was the whipsawing with the $1 billion stock sale where they <laughs> they told public analysts, yeah, no, I think we're good on cash. We don't need any cash. And days later, they announced that they were raising a billion dollars in cash. Now, that might have been because they couldn't disclose that, but there's a different way to say it than, no, we don't need the cash. You could say, we're exploring the cash. I think they made the wrong decision there. I already mentioned doing a little bit too much when it comes to solving supply chain problems. When you look at the likes of Apple or Ford or Toyota, when they have supply chain disruptions and people can't get their vehicles, they'll do some things. They'll do single digit percent things to try to speed up supply chain as much as possible, but they will not forego their hardware margins in order to get consumers their goods and devices. And the thing that we've seen now is it actually, it creates positive aura around the brand. It makes it elite. It makes it like, oh my gosh, you got your hands on a PlayStation. Nobody's worried about, is Sony going to do well with the PlayStation? I think it's made it that much more elite. And so I think management made the wrong bet there and felt a little bit too much of the pressure in that they solved the problem multiple times and it's hit their margin. And then another example is in October of last year, October 17th, Peloton announces three to 5,000 new hires, increasing their workforce by 50, 60% just in the coming year or so. A couple of weeks later, they announced a hiring freeze. And so you're really seeing a lot of odd whipsawing. And when you have that all paired with a reputation for having weak internal controls, investors and public or private markets alike are going to lose faith in you. And I think what we need to hope for from Peloton management is that they accept the fact that they've done the hard part. They've created a category. They really have. And they've defined a new sector and they have a lot of fast followers, but they're still the clear number one by a mile. We need to hope for them that they can get out products two, three, and four that are going to be really successful for them and probably add a couple of folks to the management team who can give public market investors a sense of stability. Because right now, their reactions and their gut are not well-tuned to the investor base that they have, and it's been showing. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of there's a famous Steve Jobs and Macintosh story that in the first 10 years of Apple, they had tons of supply chain issues. And one of the reasons Tim Cook was famously hired 
and made Apple Apple and we take it for granted is that he was just the master of the supply chain and that Steve Jobs knew that he had to put that aside at some point. How does competition, how does management deal with competition? I'm curious, you have a unique vantage point into the many people taking, becoming the Peloton of X and fitness. So tell us a little bit about what you've seen out in the market, what's coming out there and how is that affecting Peloton's business? Yeah. So we are, as a disclaimer, we're investors in a company called Fight Camp, and it is the leading boxing at-home fitness company. And they've raised about 80 million bucks, but they have competitors more broadly in at-home fitness like Tonal that have raised half a billion dollars. Obviously, Mirror was acquired for half a billion by Lululemon, but is a pretty large business at this point. Hydro, which is on the rowing side, has raised about a quarter billion dollars and so on and so forth. There's actually a huge amount of these players. Now, we're talking about tens and hundreds of millions. Peloton has billions on its balance sheet. So they are by far the 80-pound, 800-pound gorilla in the room. And even when we look at the incumbents, the icons and the Nautiluses of the world, those businesses are multi-hundred million dollar hardware businesses. So Peloton has the opportunity to dominate this market. Now, the problem is, as these other companies develop the at-home fitness market and they have interesting innovations, Peloton hasn't proven its ruthlessness. And when I say it's ruthlessness, I mean the Google, Microsoft, Apple ruthlessness of watching people play well, take some of the stuff that you built and iterate on it, and then either acquiring them rapidly or squashing them out of existence. They haven't demonstrated that to the market. So I think that that will change. I think that they will introduce a rowing product into the market. We've seen them introduce some boxing-related content. I don't think that they're going to be competing directly with Fight Camp in that way, but would really like to see how management evolves their M&A strategy to take advantage of some of the upside instead of just acquiring players in more of the supply chain. And to be fair to them, they have. They've acquired a company called Otari that makes interactive workout mats. They've acquired a company called Atlas Wearables that's a smart watchmaker. And they are boasting an interesting product pipeline. Let's see if it comes to fruition. Beachbody, for example, bought an exercise bike and other bikes. How do you think about the power of their brand versus the power of their product, their network? Like, How do they compete in those things when they're so much cheaper and, and win? And what is it that's driving that? I think that they, in creating a category, implicitly, you are going to benefit upstarts and you are going to benefit incumbents in the market. I look to players like Tesla, for examples here. So Tesla has companies that have basically never shipped a vehicle valued in the tens and hundreds of billions just because they look and smell like Tesla. And then, of course, you have incumbents like Fords that are trading at all-time highs because of the success of their electric vehicles. So when a category is created, it will create actually quite a few winners, especially if you're not a, a ruthless player yourself. And Tesla and open sourcing so much of its technology, I would argue, is not ruthless at all. Peloton, when you survey people who have at-home fitness devices and people who are interested in at-home fitness devices in the United States, they are by far and away the name that everybody says. So it's not 20% or 30%. It doesn't look like they're 12% overall market share in at-home fitness. It's 60, 70, 80%, the numbers that come back as far as, yes, I'm planning on getting a Peloton or I have a Peloton or et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that they have dominated the airwaves. There was Nordatrack and Bowflex, and you remember late night commercials. So it's not like they're the first one. I mean, those guys notoriously dealt with these boom and bust cycles where they'd have to grow and then they'd decline and never became sort of as big or meaningful as Peloton. Is Peloton different than that? Or are you going to deal with the same things? What's your perspective on that? 
Let's talk about market size and growth. And then let's talk about Peloton's business model. So on the market size and growth, typically things like at-home fitness really just take big hits when the economy takes a big hit. When people are feeling kind of rich, they go, you know what? I'm going to spend a thousand or I'm going to spend 2000 bucks on this thing. It's cool. And, and it'll look good next to my nice new car in the garage. And when the economy takes a hit, like it did in 07, 08, at-home fitness sales fall. But in general, they actually climb every single year, both in the US and on a global level. Now, what's trendy, what's cool, certainly can change from time to time. And if we look at Nautilus that owns Bowflex, if we look at their sales pre-pandemic, they were falling. They've, of course, jumped up in the pandemic. But these companies can be somewhat hit-driven. And if they can't keep their hardware catalog fresh, and they have 30-plus SKUs, then sure, they won't stay on trend. Now, the benefit of Peloton's business model is, again, it's established itself as a content company, as a super high-quality internet subscription business, and they've invested accordingly in that content. And so given the usage base and how people are using it for a variety of fitness activities, I think that they are, from a usage standpoint and from a business model standpoint, pretty well hedged against the ups and downs. They're going to have years with higher sales and years with lower sales based on how innovative they are on the hardware front. But that subscription business with that retention rate, I would be shocked if that company shrank or wasn't profitable on a standalone basis anytime in the next decade, because it really is a very high margin and high retention business. What we see in SaaS and other places is subscription is just a game changer. Are there specific things in that user experience and brand that made this so different than, I don't know, NordaTrack or the 50 other at-home fitness things that came in? You mentioned music, you've mentioned the celebrity, like, is it just the fact that the connected model, they really cracked it? Or are there other things maybe even more unique in the experience that they really nailed that, that led to this? I think it really is taking the highly engaging experience of being in a studio fitness class. That's everything from the lighting to, of course, the music and the instructor looking you in the eye and saying, get up off that bike. You can push a little bit harder, pick up that weight. So they would have loved to do it another way. They had to put all this stuff together to deliver that crisp of an experience. And it really is the combination of all those things together that worked. Just like the iPhone, the world had smartphones before it. I remember you used a BlackBerry and you could type on a phone and you could certainly use the internet and they had smaller and smaller computers, but nobody had quite tied it together in that way. Even electric vehicles aren't actually new, but Peloton, Tesla rather, delivered on such a crisp, vertically integrated experience that it really blew the minds of customers. I think that this is inherent in category creation, that it's never a new component, really. It's just always bringing it together in that uniquely powerful way. And of course, streaming existed before Netflix, but they brought it together in a better way. When you think about, I guess, how they brought it together, there's these unique things that they brought. Like one, for example, is live versus recorded. One is like creating game mechanics in there. Double click on those a little bit and tell us about them. Like, talk about live, for example. Do you have a sense for what percent of their users do live things? Does that matter? Which of those things did they are really, really important and which of them are superfluous? Again, this is not a new thing, it's a borrowed thing. One of the parts of being in a studio fitness class is actually taking that class live. Initially, users really loved 
joining these classes at the time schedule. And, and they almost had that same guilt if they missed that schedule, et cetera, et cetera. That created an especially good experience. Now, today, people are not mostly doing live classes, but it still has that same feel to it and that same energy to it. At the same time, the leaderboard, the competition, oh man, that's what we call a CAC hack. So people see their own performance. They compete with themselves, but they also compete with strangers in the room and friends who are potentially doing the same classes, whether it's at the same time or not. And they post it to social media and they text people and they talk trash. But that's something that John also borrowed, let's say, from the studio fitness experience. And I believe they were sued for borrowing it, but they created this leaderboard and community effect. And now when you go into the app, you can see complete strangers doing the same pre-recorded workout as you, but at the same time. And so it does kind of create a nice thing of, oh man, 10 other people are meditating with me, right? Or other people are doing shadow boxing with me, which is a new module that they just released today, actually. And, and more things like that. The beauty of that is that it really can expand into creating a fitness community and community is also really sticky. And so fitness community of complete strangers, but just people who identify with Peloton, who want to use those classes, et cetera, become a part of the user experience that's then inherent to them. And they've leaned into that heavily and productized that incredibly well. Let's double click now on music. You've mentioned it a couple of times, gave some of the history of it. How does music play into their business? How are they managing it today? What do you think they're going to do in the future with music? Inherent in vertical integration and category creation, you tend to have to build almost everything yourself. If we fast forward in time, consider that Peloton has already built something of a music, but at least a talent business. And what they do today is really around licensing and integration. So if you like something in your Peloton app, then it'll auto-save to your Spotify or your Apple Music, et cetera. And they have partnerships and integrations. If you believe that Peloton is going to be an ultra-profitable 100 million subscriber business, there's a real case that Peloton is actually going to build an in-house fitness music label. And I'm not saying that they have plans for this, but that is what vertical integration looks like. And you might think, gosh, that sounds crazy. But keep in mind that they're spending over $100 million a year on music licensing. And it doesn't cost $100 million bucks to start a music label. Now, it's all about prioritizing and picking what problems you want to have as a company. For now, they have chosen to bite the bullet and pay these music licensing fees, paying, again, much higher rates than other people. But I do think that there is an inextricable connection between music and the latest songs and workout classes. So if you're inspiring someone to stay fit, you have the ability to create connection between user, music soundtrack, instructor that really makes the energy in the room. What does Netflix do? Because I like looking at more mature businesses to kind of think about how this business is going to evolve. Now, Netflix had a similar problem. They were paying at the nose for other people's content. And eventually it just became too big, too painful. And they said, okay, we need to create our own content now. What are they able to do? Well, they're able to funnel demand to their own content, but they don't have to pay anybody for licensing fees. And over time have a higher and higher margin content business. Now in creating your own content, you actually create the same loyalty and stardom and fandom around that stuff. I expect that Peloton will actually have somewhat captive musicians where they are actually 
the music label. And those stars were actually made on Peloton, streamed by millions of people. And they're going to benefit from that same thing that right now is a pain point from them. Because if you look at companies that have vertically integrated, whether they're Amazon or they're Apple, they eventually take their pain points and they make them their strengths and then they license them out to other people. It's funny. In my mind, I've flip-flopped at least twice during this breakdown of, are they a hardware business that sells a subscription? Or is that subscription the thing that sells their hardware? And it sounds like you're saying, I guess in the long run, you view them as really a content business. I think if you look at it both from a market size, when I say market size, I mean, how many people are interested in buying a Peloton bike knowing the price? Well, that's about 10 million people. The Peloton says it's 12 million people. But how many people are open to being a subscriber? That's four times as many people. It's 40, 50 million people. Inherently, it will touch more people But even in the business model, you make money once from that hardware device. They would argue they make more than that because after three, four years with a V1 bike, you want to buy a V2 bike and so on and so forth. And that's how Apple argues its hardware is. They say, yeah, technically our hardware is one time, but you know, this is a subscription. You're going to keep buying this thing. And Peloton likes to posit that they are just as good and just as advanced on the hardware upgrade side. But if you buy a bike once, you make Peloton 2000 bucks. But if you stay a subscriber... They have a $500 annuity stream every single year that they're clipping on you. And so inherently, especially as the growth rate lowers, as it has over this past quarter or two, subscription revenue will eventually become the vast majority. What we'll see over the next few years is it'll become the vast majority of revenue. And starting in 2018 and 2019, Peloton really started leaning into that. And if we look on a generous level, I would posit that they have almost 70% margins on that subscription business. And it's at about a $1.5 billion annual run rate. You've got one of the largest and the highest retention consumer subscription business that I know that's dominating its category and growing 100% year over year on the subscription side, even though the hardware business shrank year over year. So that shows you the strength of the business model and why they focused on it. When you think about five to 10 years in the future and Peloton does fully realize its potential... What did they do right and what happened in the macro environment to lead to that really positive outcome? They have properly capitalized on the international opportunity. They're in Germany, they're in some Spanish-speaking countries, they're in Australia, New Zealand, etc. But really, this is still pretty untouched for them. And they believe that they can build a bigger business outside of the US than they've built in the US. That's an extremely exciting point of growth that they need to capitalize on. And that's just execution and making sure that they don't get ousted by fast-moving competitors. I think the second point is that they've really gotten their content into every consumer's hands through partnerships. So that means that they actually need to partner with everybody who has a screen in front of consumers, whether it's Amazon or in fact, Apple or Google or anyone else. And they need to somehow, some way get people to try their content because what they're confident about, and as a user, what I've been very impressed with is their content is absolutely phenomenal. Sales, marketing are these huge categories for them. What are they doing on the marketing front? Is that part of the business innovative and interesting? So Peloton has a unique marketing engine. And what makes it most unique is their need to educate consumers and create entry points for them to try the product or at least try something in the Peloton ecosystem. So the way they think about it is a little bit different 
than how a typical widget maker might look at it. So typically, if you just had a bike, there's no ecosystem. It wasn't at a high price point or anything like that. You would say, hey, I need to acquire customers. So I'm going to buy some TV ads and I'm going to buy some Facebook ads. And I'm going to try to track all this stuff to make sure that it runs efficiently. And they, of course, do that. That's a huge multi-hundred million dollar bucket of spend, and they spend across all of these channels. And of course, they do the standard things like discounting from time to time, and that comes out of sales and marketing spend, as you can imagine. But they also think of many of their revenue line items as effectively subsidized marketing spend. So what does that look like? If you have a corporate partnership or a partnership with American Express or various insurance companies, et cetera, which they do you'll actually give away your products, let's say for a year for free. Now that's a marketing expense, but they just want to get you to try the product. And then they're going to get you hooked on that product is their bet. Or if you have a partnership with Hilton Hotels or one of these other large hospitality groups, which they do, you're not actually trying to maximize the amount of money you're going to make in these B2B deals. You're actually just trying to get the maximum number of people to try the product. And that's why it's a much more complex thing than hey, here's the number of customers they added and it's 700 million bucks of marketing spend and it's all on Facebook. So they have a much more nuanced multi-touch funnel because again, this is 2000 bucks. It requires a lot of touch points and a lot of education to get someone from, yeah, I don't know if I can even afford this thing to actually, you know what? I'm going to amortize this over the next 10 years. And if I work out 20 times per month, I think I can't afford it actually. So they educate people. Yeah. Now let's flip the question around. If 10 years from now, nobody knows what Peloton is, or it just doesn't go the way anyone expects, what happened both again in terms of their execution as well as the macro environment? I think the bear story is crystal clear. In the short term, people might look to supply chain issues or undercutters like Echelon and Beachbody, Lululemon, whatever you might want to say. But in the long term, you can only look in one real direction and it's it's the big tech companies. It's Apple Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, effectively making this quality of content more cheaply or effectively free for consumers bundled with their other offerings and making it so darn good that they make Peloton completely irrelevant. And the scary thing about these companies is they have the market capitalization and the balance sheet to endure so much more pain than any other company in the world, really. They're very, very scary to compete with. If that happens, one of these five players will eventually acquire Peloton, especially if it continues to trade as cheaply as it's trading right now. But I don't expect that happens. And if it is one party, I would expect it's Apple because Apple's already made very, very clear that they're playing in this space. And again, they know hardware, they know content, music licensing, and they've got that relationship with the consumer where they're in their hand at all times. And so they're probably most formidable competitor. Is there anything outside of, I guess, that competitive dynamic? There's things that they could, marketing CAC or content, the quality of content diminishes. Like, Are there other things that could be big risks for them or hurt the business in the medium to long run? If you play out a midterm scenario where Peloton can't get another piece of hardware right, but they pour billions of dollars into developing new hardware that ultimately fails, they never really have success beyond the bike but they've acquired their way into and built their way into billions of dollars of CapEx expenditure with facilities to create new hardware or even just their bikes, they might genuinely 
from a business standpoint, make themselves irrelevant. So if you overinvest in supply chain and shipping people, devices, et cetera, and your expectations are tenfold what your demand ultimately is, it'll impact your gross margins. You won't be able to afford to pay much to acquire a customer. So then your business will start shrinking. And then the last straw for them will ultimately be this content and subscription business. And if, of course, the quality of the content goes away, or more likely Apple or some other competitor hires away their 10 most popular instructors out of their 50 and recreates better or more interactive or more engaging content, then eventually people will say, gosh, Peloton used to have great content and that's why I was loyal to them for 10 years. But now XYZ company is actually providing much better content at a cheaper price. So why would I stick around? Would you stick around with Netflix if they stop producing new shows? No, probably not. That's why they have to stay on the ball. So these are not businesses that are easy to operate at all. All in execution risk is absolutely there. If they're going to be a content business, they really have to get great at content or continue to be great at content, especially in a more and more crowded space. This has been really interesting, Vinny. Let's kind of go to the last few questions here. There's always three we ask. What to entrepreneurs or executives, what can they learn from this story? I think it's twofold. I think it's persistence. And when I say persistence, I mean, I mean, it really took John years to raise that first, what I would call batch of capital. And the first time he raised capital, it was at a less than a $2 million valuation. It's not like this was a fun journey for him. And I've heard him pitch multiple times and he pitches hard out and, and he got no's from 400 institutional investors who just kind of said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why would someone pay 2000 bucks for a bike? I can just pay 40 bucks every time I want to work out. It doesn't make sense to me. And especially when you are creating a category, you are just going to get a whole lot of no's. The second bit of advice would be your business is not what you imagine it to be or the most glamorous or sexy part of the business, it is around how do your customers perceive value. The beauty of businesses like Peloton or like Netflix is they can actually track this very closely. Netflix actually sees what made you stop your scrolling? What made you click? How many minutes did you watch that show for? What time did you watch it? Did you binge it, et cetera? And then did the customers who watched that show retain better ultimately than the customers who watched another show. Peloton has all that same data, but the beauty of internet companies and most startup entrepreneurs building tech companies is you have a tremendous amount of data and insights into what you're building. If you listen, and if you look at the data, your customers will tell you where they perceive value. And you can use that as your roadmap for what you build. And I think they've done a good job of doing that. And a lot of companies that are in their peer group have done a great job of doing that. For people who want to learn more about Connected Fitness, the Peloton story, where would you guide them to go? The beauty of this is it doesn't need to be an academic exercise. I actually think the best way to study this is to experience it as a consumer. But then, of course, to go back and look at, okay, what did actually Netflix do? What did the cable companies do, et cetera, if you want to see into the future? Because anytime we look at these new business types, they're not actually new business models. So if you want to see what a consumer subscription company is going to do, go back in time and look at what the cable companies did. They saturated their markets. They had incredibly high retention. And so they introduced pay-per-view and premium content and a variety of bundling and cross-sell and upsell, et cetera. I think you're going to see the same price increases here in this world with such high retention. You're going to see similar bundling going on. You're going to see them doing cross-company bundling and so forth. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, Vinny, thanks so much for breaking down Peloton with us today. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 